All right, if you're here for the event on Jerusalem, you're in the right place. We're just gonna give this a couple more moments for people to enter the room and then we'll get started. Okay, well, let's go ahead and get started. Uh, good morning uh, and welcome to the first session in our eight-part congressional briefing series, Israel and Palestine, Hot Topics in Congress. I'm Khaled Al-Gindi. I'm director of the uh, program on Palestine and Palestinian-Israeli affairs at the Middle East Institute. Uh, and I'm very pleased to be co-hosting this series with Lara Friedman, president of the Foundation for Middle East Peace. Thanks, Khaled, and I'm Lara Friedman from the Foundation for Middle East Peace. Today's session is entitled, Who's Jerusalem? Um, and to dig into the issues related to Jerusalem today, we have with us another outstanding panel of experts. And I say another because we did a series last year, uh, which maybe some of the people who are attending today uh, caught, which was excellent. Um, our panelists today, and I'm gonna introduce them in alphabetical order, are um, Dana Al-Kurd, who is an assistant professor of political science at the University of Richmond and a non-resident fellow with the Middle East Institute. Uh, we have Munir Nusebe, who is a human rights lawyer and academic at Al-Quds University in Jerusalem. And finally, we have Danny Seideman, who's an attorney in Jerusalem, specializing in legal and public issues in East Jerusalem. And he is the founder and head of the NGO Terrestrial Jerusalem. Um, you can read our panelists' full bios on the website, uh, FMEP and, and MEI's website. You, you should have that in the invitation. Um, and we can put links to that also into the chat box. I would also say look to the chat box for Twitter handles and links and other relevant resources. And if you miss anything in the chat box, don't worry. We'll also post that um, on the webpage with the rest of the things about this series. So the, the format for this uh, session, as well as future briefings, will be pretty straightforward. Uh, it'll be a moderated Q&A led by Lara and me. Um, we'll put some basic questions to our panelists, uh, and then uh, we'll open it up to questions from, from our audience members, uh, which you can submit uh, at the bottom of the, use the Q&A function at the bottom of your Zoom window. Um, you can submit questions at any time. Uh, and then we will uh, try to insert those, uh, as many of those as we can into the conversation uh, as possible. Uh, finally, let me just note that uh, this webinar is being recorded. Um, and so if you have to leave early, uh, or if you can't attend a session in the future, then you can always catch uh, the recording later on. Um, also, if you have any technical problems or questions with the webinar, please put those in the chat box uh, and we'll try to get those sorted out. And so with that, let's go ahead and begin. Terrific. So the first round is gonna be sort of a scene setter round, um, just as a brief introduction. So as the center of national aspirations of both Palestinians and Israelis, as well as a place sacred to Jews, Christians, and Muslims worldwide, Jerusalem has long been seen as the heart of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Um, however, the reality today is that one side, Israel, has exercised almost total control over the political, demographic, geographic, and physical realities in Jerusalem for many years, including Israeli West Jerusalem and occupied East Jerusalem. So in this session, we're gonna look at the range of Israeli policies in Jerusalem, including settlement expansion, and displacement of Palestinians in East Jerusalem, and Palestinian responses um, in the context of these competing claims to Jerusalem. So Munir, I want to start with you. Can you start off by giving us a sense of what daily life is like for the 400,000 or so Palestinians who live as legal residents in Jerusalem? You know, what is their legal and political status vis-a-vis uh, -vis Israel, the PA, and, and how do their rights and privileges differ from those of Israelis? Um, and then maybe overarching, you know, what are the challenges, the most serious challenges they face as residents of Jerusalem um, now and, and over time? Um, thank you very much, uh, Lara and, uh, and Khaled. Um, so uh, when Israel annexed um, uh, the eastern part of Jerusalem in 1967, 
uh, it gave a residency status to uh, all Palestinians who uh, lived in East Jerusalem. So despite the fact that they illegally, according to international law, annexation of occupied territory is illegal. So illegally occupied, um, uh, annexed um, the Eastern part of Jerusalem at the time, uh, they refrained from giving citizenship to the uh, population, but they only gave them a permanent residency status. This status is uh, very different uh, uh, compared to Israeli citizenship. Uh, on the one hand, um, it gives uh, the person who holds this uh, uh, status the right to uh, live um, in the city, to work, uh, to be a member of the social welfare and medical insurance, to pay taxes into these systems, and also to receive um, uh, uh, rights and entitlements uh, from these uh, uh, systems. Um, however, uh, one of the most important aspects of this um, status is that it is easily revocable. Um, uh, since 1967, Israel has revoked over 14,600 uh, residencies from Palestinians uh, in East Jerusalem based on a number of criteria. Uh, it started off by um, revoking the residencies of everyone who left uh, uh, um, uh, the country for seven years or who stayed uh, uh, or who got a residency or a citizenship abroad. Later on, uh, it uh, developed um, additional methods for revoking residencies. It invented um, a new criterion uh, after the peace process, uh, unfortunately, uh, according to which uh, the residency uh, of a permanent resident would be revoked if their center of life is outside what Israel considers part of its sovereign territory, uh, which includes all of the West Bank, except for East Jerusalem um, and Gaza Strip. Uh, so after the peace process, the uh, Israel started, you know, speeding up the revocation of residences from Palestinians in Jerusalem. Uh, and this is an important part of its demographic um, um, control, um, the, the way of minimizing um, the number of Palestinians uh, in Jerusalem. Um, at the same time, uh, also in 2016, uh, uh, Israel added a, a new method uh, in 18, sorry, according to a new law, uh, it, they added a new method for residency revocation called breach of allegiance to the state of Israel. So if a permanent resident is accused of breaching allegiance to the state of Israel, they are also liable to having their residency revoked. Um, those who have their residency revoked, regardless of whether they are actually living in Jerusalem or outside Jerusalem, they lose the right to live in Jerusalem. Um, but in addition to the residency revocation, we have the restrictions on child registration and family unification. Um, so we have uh, thousand, because um, uh, this status residency is not a citizenship, it doesn't pass uh, automatically uh, to children. Um, so um, there is a very complicated bureaucracy uh, according to which, uh, and, and many conditions uh, that you have to follow in order to register your children as residents. And this has left many children and also adults uh, uh, who have not been registered in the population um, registry in uh, the Israeli population registry. Uh, many who are not stateless because all of us are stateless. We don't have a citizenship. You asked also about status in the PLO and other places. So we have no citizenship at all. Most of the Palestinians in Jerusalem have no citizenship at all. So we are, most of us are stateless, but there are people in Jerusalem who I call statusless. They have no status whatsoever. They cannot live anywhere on this planet legally. Uh, so uh, many of them. Uh, so I, one of the things that we do in that I do in my work is that I had a center uh, that uh, belongs to Al Quds University that provides legal aid to Palestinians, um, and uh, uh, we watch. We actually represent families. Uh, with children and adults who have no legal status at all, who live in Jerusalem, according to the Israeli legal system, illegally, uh, only because their parents uh, at some point did not manage to give them uh, a legal status because of the, all of the Israeli uh, bureaucracy and discriminatory laws that are restricting passing legal status to these children. Um, but also family unification. So Palestinians in, uh, in East Jerusalem who want to get married to fellow Palestinians from the rest of the West Bank or from Gaza Strip, uh, according to the Israeli no law, 
cannot actually uh, pass uh, um, uh, their status to their spouses. So their spouses who are living in Jerusalem with them can never become permanent residents. Uh, if they are from the, if the spouses are from the West Bank, they cannot even apply for family unification and they have to live either separately uh, or to live abroad together, which will risk uh, obviously the residency status of the um, spouse from Jerusalem. But uh, if they are from Gaza Strip, they can get temporary uh, residency statuses, not residency, permits to stay in Israel, um, according, you know, in, in the way that the Israeli law or, uh, organized. So back to your first question, and maybe I should <laughs> uh, um, not make my answer uh, much longer than that. Uh, you asked, how do Palestinians live in Jerusalem? And um, the way... I have uh, my personal experience as a Palestinian in Jerusalem, but also what I witness as um, a legal aid provider. I see that Palestinians are all the time running uh, between Israeli governmental um, institutions in order to only survive and be able to live in their own city, in order to get the most basic rights, like living in your house, like medical aid, uh, like, uh, you know, the things that should be taken for granted, that are taken for granted everywhere else around the world. Palestinians are all the time spending their time, their money, their energy, uh, and their nerves in order to be able to, um, uh, to survive. And I've only described their uh, civil status, you know, uh, and there are many other that I'm sure we will discuss in other questions. Thank you. Thanks, Munir. Um, if I could, I want to turn to to you, Danny, um, as a, a as an Israeli and as a as a lawyer and as someone who's uh, focused on uh, Jerusalem for for many many years. Um, help sort of fill out the picture for us a little bit more. We heard a little bit about the kinds of policies Israel uh, uses with regard to the Palestinian community in in Jerusalem. Um, what is uh, what is the overarching vision that Israel has in implementing these kinds of policies? Uh, I mean, most of us, are, I think, are familiar with Israel's settlement project and Israeli settlements and the, you know, the problems that they posed. But what are some of the other tools that Israel uses to achieve uh, its overarching vision? To begin to answer that question, I would suggest reading a piece of literature. Uh, called the Trump Plan, <laughs> uh, and and treat it as a document um, uh, that discloses intent, uh, because uh, in our years of working together, Lara, we have seen the Trump Plan folding out in Netanyahu's policies for many years. Trump put them into words, and if I can very briefly articulate what that entails. I would say um, it is the fragmentation of Palestinian East Jerusalem and fragmentation uh, of its connection uh, to the Palestinian hinterland in the West Bank to the North and South. It is a fragmentation that's geographical, it is social, uh, and it's political. Um, secondly, we have an attempt to denationalize the Palestinians to turn them from a national collective with equal equities and parities in Jerusalem into a tolerated uh, uh, minority. Uh, one of my Palestinian calls this the Jaffaization of Jerusalem. And I mean no aspersion to Palestinian uh, citizens of Israel who live in Jaffa, but somehow, um, excuse my bluntness, domesticated Palestinians will know their place. And that means crushing any possible political activity, however moderate or innocent it might be. And finally, we have the marginalization of um, uh, Muslim and Christian equities in the city. And we have been witnessing for many years um, the religious radicalization that is taking place in and around the old city, something that we will address later. Um, I want to focus on two areas in which this is playing out very specifically, because uh, Trump and Netanyahu may be gone, but their spirit lingers uh, for reasons we will probably discuss later. Um, uh, I would say two things. Number one, um, we have a continuing a continuance of the classic settlement enterprise 
uh, of construction of new Israeli neighborhoods beyond the green line illegally, contrary to international law, but it's not happening everywhere. It's happening in a very specific place, and that is on the southern flank of Jerusalem, uh, across the entire southern flank from Hargilo, the settlement in the west to uh, the southeast corner in Harchoma is being filled with settlements of the expansion of Argilo, Ahuzat Argilo, uh, Givat Matos. We now have a new settlement, brand new, under this current government. And this is a linear development which has a qualitative impact. And the qualitative impact is severing East Jerusalem from its environs in the West Bank. That is not about to happen. That is happening now. Secondly, we've been monitoring settlement enclaves, small areas uh, that um, are located um, uh, in the old city and around the old city. They're enclaves because they were isolated and discontinuous with Israel. Today, we are witnessing a change that is not linear. It is a quantum change. And that is the expansion of these settlements by means of uh, continued and expansion of the settlements themselves, major governmental projects, and here we link to, for the first time since June of 1967, with the Mugrabi Quarter, large-scale displacement of Palestinians in East Jerusalem. Not everywhere, but in the areas that are targeted by the settlers. And that means hundreds of families in risk of displacement in Sheikh Jarrah, hundreds of families in risk of displacement in uh, Silwan, and you can add um, the uptick in uh, demolitions in these areas. What we're seeing is the encirclement of the old city with settlements and a settler related uh, enterprises, which will literally embrace the old city. Now that is being done with um, Sheikh Jarrah through Mount Scopus in the north, um, um, Silwan, Ras al Mount of Olives to the south, there is a large gap in the middle and the churches get in the way. Most of the area between the Northern Pincer movement and the Southern Pincer movement are churches. These are the holiest sites in Christendom. And so we will be, what we're seeing unfolding and you will be hearing more of this is um, placing the holiest sites in Christianity uh, in or adjacent to a national park, which will be under the sway of the settlers. Um, this is a major change, something that no Israeli government has done in the past. Uh, this will, A, undermine uh, the stability of the city. This will not go unnoticed. It is not an accident that violence erupted when we started tinkering with the two most sensitive issues in this conflict, displacement and holy sites and the centrality of Jerusalem. And when we tinkered with them, we got the eruption of violence last May. It will make any future political agreement uh, much more difficult, regardless of one's model. There is no model which gives Israel exclusive hegemony over Jerusalem with tolerated minorities, whether they're Palestinian, Muslim, or Christian. And finally, this is a threat. It's a crime against Jerusalem. This threatens, regardless, put politics aside. I know that's not possible. This undermines the historic, religious, and cultural integrity of Jerusalem. This will not go unnoticed. It has not been adequately articulated yet. It will be, and this needs to be engaged sooner rather than later and uh, rather robustly. Um, this is something that is that folks in whom are making decisions are becoming aware of. These are the two changes that are taking place today. Sealing Jerusalem from Bethlehem and the encirclement of the old city. Thanks, Denny. And you gave me a great lead in for my question for Dana, which um, Denny talked about the marginalization of Palestinian political activity in Jerusalem. And we've seen reports of arrests when there are meetings of almost any kind of almost any grouping in Jerusalem claiming it's illegal activity. So 
I want to ask you about the political side of this. So last year, the the long delayed Palestinian elections were canceled. Um, and they were canceled ostensibly, at least in part, over Israel's refusal to allow Palestinians in East Jerusalem to vote. Um, in the last elections, they, they, there was a mechanism by which they could vote. Um, talk about, if you will, what role Jerusalem and Jerusalemites play in Palestinian politics, and, and what, if anything, the Palestinian leadership, which is not present in Jerusalem technically, um, is doing to, to counter the negative trends that that Munir and Danny talked about. Yeah, uh, thank you for the for the important question. So um, it's true. Everything that um, was already mentioned by the other speakers, um, there are you know great impediments um, to Palestinian organizing in Jerusalem and Palestinian connection to you know other communities in historic Palestine to the the you know the politics of the Palestinian Authority. Um, whether it's sheer repression, like you said, shutting down meetings or shutting down institutions, even cultural institutions, all of those things that happen in Jerusalem uh, regularly uh, at the hands of the Israeli state, um, but socially uh, as well. However, I would say that despite this, despite this marginalization that's very, you know, purposive and targeted, um, people, Palestinians in Jerusalem have been able to mobilize uniquely. Um, because of that marginalization almost. So they are not represented by the Israeli government. They're not Palestinian citizens of Israel. It's a different kind of relationship to the Israeli political authority. On top of that, they, you know, the Palestinian authority is not allowed to function in, in Jerusalem. And their historic institutions that exist in Jerusalem have been shut down, have been limited. So in some in some ways, obviously, that, that's a huge impediment to their ability to organize and to resist the, the status quo. But also it leaves them unencumbered by the considerations and constraints of other Palestinian communities within the Green Line and in the territories. Um, and so they can, what we've seen is that they can refocus their resistance on the Israeli state itself in a way that maybe other communities find it more difficult to, to accomplish. Um, so they have been able to protest directly in inspiring ways, in creative ways, in large number, numbers. Um, and, and every time we have one of these waves of protest, whether it's in 2014 with um, Muhammad Abu Khader's murder um, or 2017 with the Al-Aqsa restrictions, um, you know, the, the, the iterative waves of, 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 of protests that we see coming out of Jerusalem, their political mobilization helps refocus the crux of this conflict, that this is a conflict as a result of settler colonialism, as a result of the nature of the Israeli state. And it's not a squabble over lines in the West Bank or how many permit, permits are allotted to Gaza or any of these kinds of policy outcomes necessarily that people might focus on. But it's a problem of the state itself. And we see that this is their impact when we look at how protests, how they spark protests across the entirety of Israel-Palestine. Um, in the occupied territories, um, you know, since 2007, um, I have research that shows that, you know, the most sustained protests have been at the margins, that the Palestinian urban centers have been somewhat demobilized. Um, but Jerusalem is this unique mobilizer. So during the events of May of, of last year, oh my gosh, we're already, I guess last year, it's been a year. Uh, um, but yeah, so during the events of the Unity Intifada, um, it was called the Unity Intifada, Palestinians in Jerusalem, they they built on those previous waves of protests and the the, the know-how and the skill set that they were able to build each time to once again mobilize effectively in Jerusalem um, around certain issues uh, that were, you know, um, whether it's, I mean, we could talk about this further, but like whether it's the repression that in the old city or the expulsions in different neighborhoods. Um, but then they also coordinated with activists in other parts of Palestine. Um, and again, we can talk about, you know, in more detail what that looked like. But the PA has been quite absent in all of this. They even intervened to stop some of the protests that happened in the West Bank that emerged in response to the events in Jerusalem. Um, and they haven't really stepped in to service the, the Palestinian population there, as far as I'm aware, for like beyond you know, maybe talking points or slogans when it comes to things like Sheikh Sharrah and Salwan and, and these kinds of expulsions that, or just the general, you know, living conditions of, of Palestinians in Jerusalem, they haven't really um, advocated for them effectively. Thanks, Dana. Um, so I, 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 wanna, I wanna stay with you for a moment and, and ask you to, to do two things if you could. If you could just um, 
first kind of take us a step back and, and tell us a little bit about the role that Jerusalem plays in the, the, the Palestinian politics, in Palestinian political consciousness, how central is it? Um, for example, you know, we often, we hear a number of, of centrist Israelis who talk about their support for a two-state solution, but one that would never, that would not include dividing Jerusalem or allowing for a Palestinian capital in Jerusalem. How feasible are, and of course the Trump plan was uh, uh, similar in that sense. How feasible are those kinds of uh, uh, proposals? Um, is Jerusalem really all that central uh, to, uh, to a future political settlement? Um, and to Palestinians in general. Um, and then I wanna ask you if you could zoom back in uh, on the situation of Palestinian Jerusalemites in particular, in light of the, uh, the recent uh, report by Amnesty, uh, which describes uh, the situation on both sides of the 1967 lines as one of apartheid. Um, does that label apply uh, in your view, in in uh, East Jerusalem in particular, and how is it different from the experiences of Palestinians in 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 other parts of the occupied territories? I know I'm I'm, I'm hoisting a lot on you all at once. You're muted. <laughs> Always the same thing. Um, you'll have to remind me if if I forget to answer a part of this. Um, so first, like the role that Jerusalem plays in Palestinian policy, how central is it? The feasibility of removing Jerusalem out of the equation. Essentially, that's the first kind of set of questions. Um, so, I mean, I don't think it's feasible at all. Um, I don't think Palestinians would accept any kind of political uh, negotiation that doesn't include Jerusalem, that isn't going to address the fact that 400,000 uh, Palestinians live in Jerusalem, and that it does play this very central role in animating politics, in animating mobilization, um, just both historically, culturally, and religiously, uh, you know, Jerusalem has been the crux of of both political organizing prior to the Oslo Accords, um, and and for some time after. Um, but you know, there's a religious re resonance there. Part of the success of the mobilizations this past summer, where we saw busloads of Palestinians from communities within the Green Line coming to Jerusalem to, to pray and protest is because of the Al-Aqsa Mosque, because of the religious significance um, animated by, you know, the Islamic movement. And um, while Israel has been, you know, quite successful in, as has already been mentioned, repressing um, Jerusalem in terms of closing down cultural institutions, um, you know, so, so it makes it difficult for the Palestinians in Jerusalem to play the same role they once did in politics. But as I said, there are these opportunities as well because of this marginalization marginalization so i think people are inspired by the um the, the the movements that emerge from jerusalem in spite of the odds and then you know the history of jerusalem as a focal point for palestinian politics is remembered as well so um all of that kind of combined uh would make it very you know very ludicrous to suggest kind of any of the, the solutions that have been uh, floated, whether it's making parts of East Jerusalem, the, the capital of Palestine, we saw under the Trump administration that was floated, or just not discussing it at all. Um, so there is, you know, I don't know, there's an ethos around Jerusalem that's that's hard to replicate elsewhere, and that does animate Palestinians in a, in a unique way. Um, the second part of your question, I'm already forgetting. <laughs> uh, well, if you could just briefly discuss the uh, Palestinian, the, the status of Palestinian Jerusalemites in the context oh, of, the, amnesty. of yeah. the, uh, of right, of the apartheid label. Yeah, so I mean, it's Palestinian, different Palestinian communities across the Green Line um, all face uh, discrimination as a result of their identity, but it doesn't have to be the exact same, exact same discrimination to merit an apartheid label. So there are like gradations, obviously. Uh, Palestinians in Jerusalem may have uh, more freedom of movement, but as Munir has already, you know, um, addressed, you know, very well, they have severe limitations on their ability to remain in Jerusalem, on their political representation, you know, they don't vote in anything, they're not allowed to vote, they're not allowed to do anything like that. Um, they're not serviced, they pay taxes, they, they get very little services. So um, I think that there is, you know, a lot of truth to the apartheid label. I know that there are criticisms that it, again, does not 
capture enough the settler colonial nature of, of the Israeli state. I think the amnesty report went farther than previous reports have done in, in, um, in pointing out that connection. So um, to me, it doesn't seem like it's mutually exclusive uh, and we can use the apartheid label if, you know, to, to advocate in a certain direction. And it's, um, I don't know, it's, it's, it seems like a very reasonable thing to, to, a very reasonable concept to use in this case. Thanks. And for, for our audience, the next um, session in this series will actually look specifically at that, um, the issue of apartheid, the term apartheid. Munir, I, I want to come back to you. Um, both you and Danny talked about the status of Palestinians in Jerusalem. You talked about Palestinians fighting really just to exist sort of day to day. And I want to pick up on that and, and talk about sort of the, the threats. And you talked about, you know, the, the people not being, you know, getting acts, getting um, IDs and whatever. There's a whole range of threats, obviously. But the threat that is most often in the news these days is the threats related to demolitions and expulsion, which is, you know, how that relates to people actually having their very presence in the city, their ability to stay in their homes and, 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 and having that challenged, and particularly we're looking at Sheikh Shara and Silwan. So can you talk about the situation in these two areas and, and talk about to what extent the threats in these areas um, are, are examples of the kinds of threats Palestinians face more broadly, even if these two areas are, are, are special because of geography and history and all that. You're, you're muted, Munir. Thank you. Um, as Danny mentioned earlier, um, Israel has, uh, since uh, it occupied the city, expropriated, confiscated um, a lot of land um, from Palestinians in Jerusalem. Over 30% of land uh, of East Jerusalem was confiscated for um, um, building settlements. But then um, uh, there were areas that were either unplanned uh, or um, not planned for uh, residents, made like green areas and, and all of that. Um, and only 13% of the land of East Jerusalem was uh, designated for construction, for constructing houses in East Jerusalem. This is the zoning policy, the Israeli zoning policy. Uh, and most of this area was already built. So basically what this actually means is that the Israeli authorities since the occupation of East Jerusalem have not allowed uh, Palestinians to live legally, uh, to build legally. Uh, it is estimated that between half, uh, between one third to half uh, of the uh, buildings in East Jerusalem are uh, built, with, built without a permit, um, because it's very difficult, in many cases impossible, uh, to get a permit to build if you are Palestinian. This is, of course, while at the same time, Israel is building huge neighborhoods, settlements, uh, um, uh, that are uh, Jewish-only settlements, but this is the Palestinian experience, is that it's very difficult to build and to, um, uh, and to expand. Um, and because of this, um, Israel demolishes uh, homes um, uh, of Palestinians. This is another thing that my, the center where I work actually works. We represent families uh, with home demolition orders. Um, uh, because they did not manage to get a permit to build their home. So they have a piece of land and they, the family is expanding. So they built and then uh, they got a demolition order. And in most, in, 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 in the, the best case scenario, what we call a success uh -huh, uh, is postponing the demolition. And uh, I'm ashamed to say that, that it's, it's, it's not a success. The success would be for people to be able to live in their homes uh, with dignity. But when we manage to postpone it, because this is the best we can get, um, we, we, we consider this uh, a success of, of, of our legal representation. And this is the same for all the other centers and lawyers who are working uh, in the area of East Jerusalem. Now, zooming into Silwan and Sheikh Jarrah, um, both of these um, uh, neighborhoods, one of them is immediately in the north, you know, exactly in the north of the walls of the old city of Jerusalem, uh, Sheikh Jarrah. Uh, and Silwan is exactly at the south of the walls of the, Sheikh, of, of, of the old city. Um, and what we are witnessing now, uh, what started, you know, uh, a while ago, but what we're, it's, we're witnessing now uh, in a much quicker way, um, 
is a, a policy of Judaization of these uh, uh, two neighborhoods. Um, Israel's plan at the beginning of the occupation was to Judaize, uh, build settlements and Judaize areas in the surrounding of, 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 of Jerusalem to start new settlements. Uh, and they built quite, you know, a belt of, of Israeli settlements around, uh, around the city. Now they have this policy of settling in the heart of Palestinian neighborhoods. And, you know, the most important neighborhoods are Sheikh Jarrah and Silwan, but also the old city of Jerusalem, actually. Uh, where we see a lot of evictions, uh, a lot of um, 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 uh, demolitions. Uh, so people living in these neighborhoods um, are uh, always, um, uh, so for example, I live myself in Sheikh Jarrah and I'm close to, uh, and I follow and I visit frequently families in Sheikh Jarrah who are at the risk of this uh, of displacement because uh, a settler uh, organization claims that um, the land on which they live um, uh, was owned by uh, by Jewish owners before uh, 1948, and um, uh, and therefore they are um, um, they have been in a court battle in Israel, the Israeli court battle, uh, for you know if decades now, uh, um, making you know uh, targeting the eviction of of, of these uh, populations, of course. The law that is being used for this uh, for these evictions is an Israeli law, uh, is the Israeli law, which is of course illegal in international law to, for the occupying power to apply its own law in an occupied territory, and the courts that are taking the decisions in this in these cases are Israeli courts, and this is also uh, uh, illegal in international law. Um, uh, however, what we we see continuously are uh, people who are defending themselves and defending their presence in their homes um, uh, in Israeli courts, losing cases and eventually being evicted gradually. At the same time, uh, uh, we see that the Israeli law is quite discriminatory. Um, it allows uh, uh, Jews to uh, claim their properties in East Jerusalem, but it doesn't allow Palestinians. So until now, none of us have spoken about West Jerusalem, right? Uh, and about the rest of uh, uh, of the area that became Israel in 1948. Um, there, 80% of Palestinians were forcibly displaced from these areas. And all of West Jerusalem has been completely uh, uh, um, uh, de-Palestinized. You know, like all the Palestinians who lived there were totally displaced. So there are no Palestinians living in West Jerusalem anymore, right, since 1948. And despite that, Palestinians, cannot claim according to the Israeli law, uh, cannot claim and force to get their own properties in, in the Western part of Jerusalem. So the way the Israeli law plays is if you're Jewish, you can make any claim anywhere, but if you're Palestinian, you cannot do that. And this leads me actually to also comment on your apartheid question, if you may, uh, you know, if you allow me. Um, I think that um, the use of the apartheid framework by not only you know by Amnesty, uh, the latest report, but also by other um, organizations like Betzelem, like uh, Yeshdin, like uh, uh, Human Rights Watch, um, and Al Haq, and Cairo Institute for Human Rights Studies, and others actually, um, is very important. Uh, I think uh, it makes the problem clearer. It's not only um, an issue that is related to um, um, conflict, armies, wars, and all of that. It is a regime that continuously um, puts Palestinians in an inferior position um, and continuously, and this is what apartheid is about basically, it's about a regime that works on um, creating um, um, domination of one racial group over another, over another racial group and uh, the crime of apartheid is um, um, conducting inhuman, inhumane acts in order to maintain this regime and to, uh, and to keep it. Uh, and this is what we're witnessing. So the use of this framework is quite significant because it reminds us always that negotiations um, and peace is not only about, you know, drawing a line here and there, but is also about human rights and about ending the regime that actually conducts 
all of these um, uh, uh, inhumane acts and replacing it with a regime um, that treats people equally. You know, equality as a constitutional um, as a constitutional um, value, which is recognized in most countries around the world, is not a principle recognized by the state of Israel. It doesn't exist in its two human rights laws that uh, that it enacted in 1992. Um, so this is something that I think should be addressed not only in Jerusalem, but everywhere else. Thanks, Munir. Um, Danny, I want to come back to you. And uh, if we could maybe dig a little bit deeper on the other side of this coin, we heard a lot about the, the pressure that is put on Palestinians, the fragmentation of Palestinian society, of, uh, of limiting the Palestinian presence in Jerusalem. Uh, on the other side of the coin, of course, is the settlements. Um, uh, as one of the foremost Israeli experts on both settlements and Jerusalem, what role do the settlers uh, and their supporters play, including those who are, of course, in uh, positions of power uh, in the government, as well as in the Jerusalem municipality and 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 other uh, posts. Um, uh, so, how uh, what is the role that settlers play in the displacement uh, of Palestinians? Uh, where do these groups and figures fall within the broader uh, Israeli body politic? What is their relationship to the state? Um, and, and looking at any patterns of settlement-related activities uh, over the years and through the present day, what are the overarching objectives uh, of the settlers, uh, particularly with regard to uh, Jerusalem? It's a great question and one we have been asking ourselves, especially since the formation of a new government. Now, we've been monitoring settlements for many years and Lara and I can tell you how far back we dealt with E1 and trying to prevent E1, um, a doomsday settlement to the east of Jerusalem, similar one in Atarot. Netanyahu didn't dare carry out E1. He tried a couple of times, but he was stopped. And this government, which is supposed to be a centrist coalition government, has allowed things to happen that Netanyahu didn't dare do. Um, and when you look at the dynamic, it, it's fascinating. I am convinced, I have, I think, direct knowledge that when Iwan and Atarok, the two doomsday settlements were put on the agenda, it was done without the knowledge of either the prime minister or the foreign minister or the defense minister, which is quite remarkable. Now, um, this could not have happened under Netanyahu. I would say that under this government, there is less malice, but much less control. And Netanyahu knew nothing happens in Jerusalem without me. That is no longer the case. What is the case is the following, and this is the dynamic that I've seen, but it's only part of the dynamic. And that dynamic is that official Israel, that Netanyahu and occupation have succeeded in splicing the ideology of the settler organizations in general, and in particular in Jerusalem, into the organizational DNA of Israel. The policeman at Damascus Gate does not need an order in order to beat up a Palestinian kid. He needs an order to stop. Uh, what happened with E1 and Atarot was, hey, nobody's minding the store, and the people in the higher planning committee of the West Bank, um, an organ of the Ministry of Defense, who are all settlers or settlers of advisory, let's take advantage of it. Um, uh, we have an uptick in demolitions. Uh, did the prime minister uh, or the mayor of Jerusalem say, hey, let's you know, do demolitions? No. Uh, we have a deputy mayor who even by settler standard is considered to be extreme and eccentric. He has a symbolic job, but the people in the planning department, the enforcement department, um, uh, uh, in, in these, and the legal department in the municipality of Jerusalem are settler and settler sympathizers. So even somebody who is weak can uh, affect an enormous change. In other words, uh, occupation is not what we do, occupation is what we have become, at least until now. Now, this explanation is not entirely adequate because I have seen um, a compendium of events uh, coming from the highest levels, which cannot be accidental or coincidental. There is a field marshal 
inside the Israeli government. I do not believe it's the prime minister, the foreign minister, the defense minister, it doesn't matter. Um, but there is somebody with a strategy and that strategy is being implemented by the settler regime within official Israel. I would describe the Israeli government not as a government, but as a loose uh, association of feudal fiefdoms um, run by a manager, like a supermarket manager. Um, you have those with a strategy uh, who are advancing settlement schemes and have the full cooperation of bureaucracy. You have the Israeli left uh, who, unlike their counterparts on the right, are disturbed by this but will not go to the mattresses and are rather ineffectual. And then you have the you know, prime minister, the defense minister, and they, they are either clueless, uh, uninformed, or pretend to be so. Um, and they are not willing to challenge yet um, what is happening. So ironically, um, the dynamic that was set in play by Trump and Netanyahu has accelerated. Having said that, there is what to work with. I'm in touch with a number of the ministers in the government. There's a learning process. Uh, and uh, one of my takeaways and the takeaways of colleagues who are even in a better position than myself to know, there is one, the one thing that concerns the senior members of this government most is losing the Democratic Party, which is remarkable. And that gives leverage. And that means that they are attentive to voices in Congress and the administration uh, when engaged that um, can be put to good effect. But that means calling a spade a spade. I will leave the apartheid discussion. I cannot get into it now. I'm not afraid of it. And uh, there are developments. But what we are describing is that it is impossible to describe Israeli rule without using the term occupation. Uh, it's not a value judgment. It is an empirical judgment. And occupation is what informs our actions and the nature of Israeli rule. It is absolutely imperative to make that term uh, commonplace in the United States, in the body politic, in the American Jewish community, and to engage on this. Because we now are in a situation where there are accelerated developments in Jerusalem, much of them without malice, but they're happening anyway. There is zero political horizon. We have a prime minister who has declared no interest whatsoever in uh, talking, um, zero political horizon, hopelessness, um, the likes of which I have not seen in uh, the years that I've, we need engagement from friends of Israel. And there are ministers in this government uh, who are going to be attentive to that. If not, um, we, this is going to continue and we need to incentivize the prime minister, the defense minister and the foreign minister to, to engage on this and stiffen the spines of those who purport to be our allies in the Israeli cabinet. Thanks, Danny. So I wanna be mindful of time here. I think we have time for one more round. So I'm gonna pack a couple things in this. So Danny, you talked earlier about the, the various threats. You, 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 and I know that we've heard um, from both Dana and from Munir about some of the sensitivities and obviously holy sites. We haven't really spoken much about holy sites, but it's, it's on the edges of everything we're talking about. So can you talk about holy sites? And particularly, you are an expert on the whole question of the status quo. And we often see reference in the media to the status quo, usually because Palestinians claim it's being violated by Israel or Israel claims it's being violated by Palestinians. Can you talk about that and what it means in terms of political stability and security um, and the erosion of it over the years? And can you also, and I think it's directly related to that, talk about this question about, Israel, about Jerusalem's volatility. We always hear about the volatility of Jerusalem um, as relates specifically to the holy sites. Can you, can you touch on that as well? I will try and do this telegraphically. Uh, the status quo on the Temple Mount is a term that emerged 
after 1967. The term applied to Christian sites and other shared sites elsewhere. Uh, and there are different interpretations of the status quo. It's fascinating, but I won't get into that. There is a core to the status quo. And that core was best summed up at the behest of Secretary Kerry, who did a very good job on this. Uh, he elicited from Netanyahu a very succinct definition of the status quo. Muslims pray on the Temple Mount, Naz Muslims visit the Temple Mount. That has been the position of every Israeli prime minister and every Israeli government since 1967. It is that status quo that in the final years of Netanyahu uh, became eroded, so much so that towards the end of his term of office, it collapsed. There is Jewish prayer on the Temple Mount, is being shouted from the rooftops by the um, uh, Temple Mount movement, and that is a grave threat to the stability of the city. Um, this was not a local event. You know, uh, part of it was the Jerusalem Police Department was 10 years ago one of the moderating forces on the Temple Mount. Today it is in legion and, and with the settlers and a very problematic one. But this was also part of, you know, two billionaire kids playing dice with the universe, Kushner and MBS, who decided that they're going to use the Temple Mount as a pawn on their chessboard and dilute the Jordanian role and replace it with Saudis. Yeah, good luck with that. Um, there is a potential change, that change is inadequate. Uh, there is a new leaf that has been turned between Jordan and Israel. The relations are much better. There was bad blood, very understandably, between King Abdullah and Netanyahu. This needs to be triangulated to include the Palestinians of East Jerusalem and Ramallah to include that. But it has shown very little progress on the ground. There was one significant success when an Israeli court um, uh, ruled recently that prayer, Jewish prayer was allowed and undermined all of the years of status quo, the Israeli government immediately appealed to the court and had it overturned. But that happened because there was robust round the clock engagement by friends of Israel in the US administration. Um, during the Kerry period, he would be on, on the telephone with King Abdullah and Netanyahu for hours every week, keeping the Temple Mount from exploding. And he did a very good job of that. There's nobody doing that. Uh, so the opportunity for change exists. There's an example of how it can be done, but the danger remains. Since I have not been sufficiently um, alarming and depressing today, let me conclude with the following. There is a conspiracy of sacred calendars afoot. In mid-April, we will be seeing a confluence of events where uh, Ramadan, uh, um, Passover, and Easter, Holy Saturday, Orthodox, Latin, all coincide. It is a perfect storm. Handled responsibly and well, this will celebrate what Jerusalem is, the meeting point of nonviolent meeting point of civilizations. But mishandled, this is um, potentially explosive. Jerusalem does not erupt by every random bump in the boat. It requires a critical mass. April of this year is a critical mass, especially when it takes place against the backdrop of potential displacement and demolitions in Silwan and elsewhere and accelerated settlement activity. Um, the good news is that this has registered with decision makers around the world who are quietly engaging on this. But it is the kind of problem that cannot be dealt with superficially, and it will require cool heads and steady hands, and there will be those who are going to seek to take advantage of the situation. Uh, in other words, between now and the end of April, we need robust international engagement and hear from friends of Israel and Palestinians. This is not the time to play with matches. Absolute restraint, best behavior, and to make sure that Muslims, Jews, and Christians will be able to celebrate their holidays without the threat uh, to their equities or the sense of violation. Um, that is possible, but it is not going to be easy. I will breathe a sigh of relief if we make it to May 1st without an outbreak of violence in Jerusalem.
Thanks for that, Danny. Um, so uh, picking up on this theme of international mobilization, I wanted to uh, turn to you, Dana, and ask specifically about the role of the United States, which, as we all know, plays a, uh, an outsized role in this conflict, but also uh, primarily because of its special relationship uh, with Israel. Um, what can or should the United States be doing on the one hand to address uh, some of these concerns, particularly in light of the stated policy of the Biden administration that it still believes in a, in a two-state solution. Um, so what kinds of policies should the United States be pursuing on the ground to ameliorate some of this, to prevent the kind of outbreak that Danny talked about? And secondly, specifically with regard to the US consulate, because this is a move um, under you know the removal, uh, the shutting down of the U.S. consulate in Jerusalem was something undertaken by the previous administration, and now the Biden administration has promised to reopen the consulate, um, but it now seems to be backing away from that promise. How important is that uh, act of reopening a U.S. consulate in practical terms, um, uh, but also in in terms of the the politics and uh, any sort of future diplomatic process. So two part question. I'll try. I'll try my best. So, um, what can be done? Well, the complete lack of pressure that has been done so far under the Biden administration seems to be, you know, a low bar. Like you can you can pressure Israel a little bit more than what you've been doing. But the fact that something like the consulate was walked back. I think indicates how far US policymakers have gone in terms of how much importance and stock they put into being seen as some sort of arbiter in this conflict or putting putting any pressure on the Israeli state, even on the margins. Um, and I can tell you from the Palestinian perspective, both Palestinians in Jerusalem, in you know, in historic Palestine and abroad, there really is no like there really is no belief in the prospect for a two-state solution for a variety of reasons, which includes the fact that the US will not actually push, push Israel on any front. It's not pressuring Israel when Israel um, you know, continues the expulsions in these key places or builds more settlements near Shafat, near all of these different um, Palestinian neighborhoods. So the, the US role in this issue moving forward is seeming to Palestinians at least the Palestinian public, let's say, what, what public opinion tells us, what the activists tell us, as more and more irrelevant. Um, and Palestinians in the diaspora, both activists and organizations, see attempts to change US policy and work within electoral politics as increasingly futile. Uh, people on the ground, I think, certainly think the same way. They put no stock into you know, what the US position is because it seems like it's a foregone conclusion that there's they, they don't meaningfully at least the Biden administration will not meaningfully hold Israel accountable. So so this has rationally, I think led Palestinians to lose hope in certain strategies. Um, kind of the, the, the confluence of, of possibly, you know, uh, possibly um, igniting uh, uh, um, events uh, that Danny was talking about. Um, yeah, I, I, I think another thing that people need to kind of put on their radar is that you know, Palestinians rationally uh, no longer um, want to, like, in how do I say this? <laughs> they they no longer want to engage uh, in in these sorts of ways in terms of like diplomatic pressure or um, or electoral politics in the United States or anything like this. So so armed resistance is becoming much more popular, and direct action activism, both in Israel and abroad, is becoming much more popular. So. Um, whether you know you can have different opinions about what that means, but this is definitely a situation that's going to lead to more, you know, loss of life, particularly on the Palestinian side. So, Munir, we're going to come to you and give you the last word. What what I want to ask you here is is going back to the question of what what Khaled is talking about the international community. You know, the, we've talked about the Palestinian leadership, we've talked about the Israelis. How do you see the role of the international community, and that can include the US, in addressing the problems in Jerusalem? And, and to the extent that so far we've had two speakers in a row talk about the, the possibility of, of increasing unrest, how, how do you see that um, in terms of its sources and in terms of, of how it can be, if it can be prevented, what that would look like? 
Uh, yes, I agree with both speakers. Unrest will continue to be there because as long as uh, there is uh, uh, this oppressive regime, which systematically um, uh, discriminates against uh, uh, Palestinians, but also uh, displaces them and dispossesses them and uh, sees them either as a security threat uh, or in the demographic threat. So we are also well seen as a threat. Um, there will always be uh, some form of uh, uh, resistance um, uh, from the Palestinians, and this will certainly always create unrest. Um, and we have seen it many, many times in the past, and we will be seeing it uh, in the future until justice is, um, you know, is, is, is established. Um, what we expect from the international community is, from my point of view, and, you know, as you know, I am an international law a, a professor, but also a practitioner uh, in, 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 uh, in, in international advocacy and all of that. I frequently go to the Human Rights Council in Geneva uh, in order to promote certain human rights issues. Um, but I also observe the rest of the world. And I read something yesterday or two days ago uh, about um, uh, Iraq uh, eventually finishing all uh, its debts uh, from the invasion of Kuwait back in 1992, uh, or in 1990, sorry. Um, so that it only finished it now. Uh, and it mentioned the number of billions of dollars that it paid. And this is wonderful. This is international law in action. Um, Iraq violated international law by invading another country. Um, according to the international law, every state has to um, um, compensate for its wrongdoing. Uh, so it did that, and over the past years it has been doing that and only finished now. Um, this is due to a Security Council resolution that actually forced Iraq to do that. Unfortunately, when we see, uh, when we look at the Israel-Palestine situation, we see that international law becomes irrelevant, and we're always uh, invited to um, negotiate um, according and taking into consideration uh, the imbalance of power. Of course, the PLO has been uh, engaged in this type of negotiation under US um, uh, mediation. And we uh, can very um, uh, confidently say that the US mediation, mediating role is, uh, 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 has failed because it's one of the reasons is that it doesn't look at both sides uh, in an equal way. It actually uh, favors one side over the other and makes sure to, to, to show that very clearly. Um, but also I see that myself now as a human rights lawyer, sometimes I'm invited by diplomats to negotiate. Uh, <laughs> you know, like you say, you talk about, uh, uh, and I'm gonna be very abstract here. You talk about specific human rights violation uh, uh, happening and you talk to a diplomat and the dipl diplomat says, okay, if the right answer is not attainable, what would be alternative options, you would say? And, you know, as a human rights lawyer, I'm, I should not negotiate. I just request the establishment of full human rights or otherwise take whatever you like with force, which is happening now. Um, so what I expect from the international community and especially from the United States, actually, in that, in, in that sense, which, is, which has an important leader, leadership role in the international community, is um, to... Um, apply international law to respect the role of the International Criminal Court, for example, in examining war crimes and crimes against humanity, um, to promote it even, which I know Donald Trump in his administration, uh, you know, um, he implemented um, sanctions uh, on, uh, on, on, on uh, the court, uh, which Biden finally um, uh, stopped and revoked. Uh, rescinded, but um, um, but I, I I expect very simply um, every uh, you know the international community are uh, members of international law human rights clubs you know treaties like the Fourth Geneva Convention uh, like the Human Rights Council and and all of uh, uh, the other forums. Um, very simply, I don't want any country to be supporting Palestinians or to be supporting Israelis. Countries um, should support international law and human rights, and should this should be more than enough. Um, so, you know, uh, this is what I would uh, what I expect. But unfortunately, I frequently see the opposite when I go to the 
Human Rights Council uh, in Geneva, in many cases, I talk to diplomats, they actually like sometimes express that they accept and agree that this is a human rights violation. This is wrong. But you know, our foreign ministry uh, does not allow us to vote in this direction. Our foreign ministry would not want, uh, for example, uh, this um, uh, this um, uh, list of uh, companies that are investing in settlements, investing in war crimes, basically, uh, to be published uh, uh, to the world. Um, our foreign ministry does not believe that accountability, uh, uh, you know, that Israeli criminals should be held accountable. So uh, this is the problem. The problem is that international law and human rights have become uh, too political, um, and I think this should change. Thank you. Thanks for that. Um, I know we've only just scratched the, the surface of a, a very complex set of issues, um, but we are uh, unfortunately out of time. So uh, on behalf of the Middle East Institute and the Foundation for Middle East Peace, I want to thank our participants, our um, excellent panelists, Munir and Dana and Danny, uh, for a really rich and enlightening discussion. Um, and thanks to all of you for, uh, for attending. Uh, today's webinar, uh, and especially those of you uh, who submitted questions. Um, so we hope you enjoyed today's session, and we hope that you'll uh, tune back in a week from now, uh, next Friday at this same time, uh, for our next uh, session, which will be focused on uh, talking about apartheid. Um, our panelists uh, next week will be uh, Shirin Tadros from Amnesty International, Salem Barahma from the Palestine Institute for Public Diplomacy, and Hagai Alad from the Israeli human rights organization B'Tselem. So thank you, and we hope to see you back uh, next week. Thank you Bye. all.